Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm going to introduce Caroline Webb, uh, a uh, partner here at McKinsey, who is one of the women spearheading, leading, uh, innovating the strategies and policies around women. And uh, she is the dean, in fact, of the McKinsey Programme for Improving the Confidence and Capability of Women Leaders. And prior to this, she was at the Bank of England, where her roles included authorship of the quarterly inflation report and advice on banking supervision in emerging markets, amongst others. So she, is, um, she has what they say in politics, a brain the size of a planet. And she's going to introduce the panel and lead the discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. I was going to lead off with a comment on the fact I've worn my best shoes today and they still weren't as good as Miriam's. <laughs> so there we are. Um, it's wonderful to, to have a chance to talk about the boardroom because it's been throughout every conversation that we've had today. It's going to feel, I think, a little bit not like a separate session but a continuation of the conversation that we've, we've already begun. And the reason that I got interested in thinking about women as leaders was not because of the startling numbers. It was because of this very powerful linkage between performance and leadership, leadership and performance. I mean, my job is, I'm a leadership coach. I coach and develop leaders. That's, really, that's, that's what my focus is as a partner here. And it's fascinating always to think about what is it that you can do to help a leader get the best out of themselves and help them in turn get the best out of the people around them. And there are all of the arguments about the fact that if you have a customer base that is 80% female, then surely you should understand that. And there's all of the arguments about more than 50% of the graduate population being female, and surely, therefore, you want to tap into the best of that population. But there's also, I think, perhaps the most magical, powerful argument of all, which is the importance of cognitive diversity to any group of people taking the best possible decision on any topic. Now, that has to be well-managed diversity because we know that when you have different opinions in the room, that has to be constructive difference rather than destructive difference. But there's so much compelling evidence over the years and years and years that are built up in psychology and experimental cognitive sciences on the fact that human beings are wired for groupthink. It's what helps our societies hold together. And if we're wired for groupthink, we know also that groupthink delivers less good answers. So... That's, I think, an interesting backdrop to think about the diversity in terms of gender. Because, of course, women do bring different experiences to the table. Some of them may be socialised, some of them may be innate, but we have a different voice to bring. So that's where I got interested, and I'm fascinated by the backgrounds of the four extraordinary, remarkable women sitting next to me, because they really do represent, I think, the richness of the conversation we've had so far. They are the absence of groupthink personified. We have corporate voices, we have public sector, we have social sector, we have people sitting on the board, we have people in the trenches making a difference in the pipeline. We've got people who have a real perspective on entrepreneurship, but also on the FTSE uh, 100 and FTSE 250. So this is the perfect group of people to take the discussion on. And I would be delighted if you could give them all a round of applause to start off with. 
And then let me specifically introduce each, each of you in turn. I think you're all going to say a few minutes to provoke and catalyze a bit of discussion. And then we know that there will be too many questions, however long we give it. So I'm looking forward to a good discussion. I'd like to introduce first Caroline Minashi from City. She's the Head of Diversity, Employee Relations and Employee Engagement. And I think that's a really important title. It's not just Head of Diversity. It's Head of everything to do with getting the best out of the employee base. And I think that's how diversity should be, should be sat. And it was you earlier on said, well, I'm hands-on in the trenches. You are making things happen really from the grassroots up. And I think you're going to have a fantastic perspective for us on what it is that City and indeed perhaps the banking sector in general is trying to do. The research that we've done recently suggests that it is actually, interestingly, the banks in many cases who are trying hardest on this issue. So another round of applause for Caroline. Would you like to take the floor? Um, I haven't got a speech. I've got a couple of thoughts and perspectives and questions, really, because I think we, you know, there's a lot that can be said about this. Um, thinking specifically about the board issue, as an internal practitioner, I, I welcome that. We wouldn't be here today if we didn't have that as a kind of headline debate. I welcome all the column inches we're getting on that issue. But actually, internally in my organisation, and I would say internally in most corporates across the UK, that's not really where we're feeling the pain. We're feeling the pain in the lack of um, real seats of power, leadership power that we be given to women. I think, um, I've been looking, we've been talking about statistics all day, but one of the kind of often quoted statistics is about 5% of internal ex executive positions globally are held by women. Now, there's a disconnect between the success, I think, that corporate Britain says in terms of getting women in senior positions, and it's true that certainly in the banking sector, we have the MD title, which would be akin to partnership in personal services, and, and we have seen a steady increase in that. However, if you look at people who are actually managing P&L businesses, that's where you see a stark difference. So one of my things I'd love to debate is, are corporates doing enough to prepare women with the kinds of leadership experience they need in order to be really credible, um, qualified, ready-now board appointees? I think we have a, a window of opportunity now where, quite frankly, there's been so little done that there is a, a depth of talent ready-now on the bench. I do worry about the next five years, though, and where those women are going to come from, unless, as corporates, we can start to find those very serious executive leadership experiences for women. So I think... Leading on from that point, my second point is, as a corporate internal practitioner, and that's all about changing the mix of leadership, right? And there are only three things you can do, and if anyone can think of a fourth or a fifth, please let me know. Um, but it's about promote more women up, it's about retain more women or lose less, and significantly it's about hiring more women. And I think we've had too long of the, we just need to fix the graduate issue and it'll all just bubble up. That just isn't really delivering on that promise. And so I think we have a real opportunity to work with, and I know Kate's in the audience, but executive search has to really play a massive role here um, in, in when we go and appoint senior leaders, either from our internal mobility talent pipeline or externally, that we are really connecting with a group of talented women and making that happen. I think that's something that we're very much focused on. Flipping right over to the board, the existing issue on the board, um, I'm hoping you've all seen the, the update report that Sue Vinicum and her team did at Cranfield on the Lord Davies thing, and definitely there has been progress, and I, you know, we need to celebrate that. I think um, 
that, that the Lord Davies report has been able to create a catalyst um, with UK chairmen that quite frankly, in my own personal opinion, government has not been, had not been able to do before that, so we celebrate that. However, I also, and I was talking to Susan Vinicom about this only just a few weeks ago, I think we need to be cautious and careful because whilst it is true that I think in March to September we saw another 21 or a new 21 women appointed to um, non-exec or exec positions, we lost 16 women, okay? So it's one thing in terms of opening the front door and encouraging women in, but if you've got a big back door at the back where we're losing women, I think the net change probably isn't being talked about. Now, I don't know the reason why we lost those 16 women. I can tell optically that seems like a disproportionately high attrition level given the percentage of women who are in those positions. Very interested in that. I'm very interested in understanding their story. Was it that the culture of the board has not actually changed. So at the first opportunity to get out, they got out, because we know that board terms last for about three years. Or was it at the first opportunity the chairman could get rid of them, did get rid of them, and they weren't asked to continue? I don't know, but for me that raises huge questions in terms of it's one thing throwing women at the front door, but we've got to make sure that their experience and their opportunity to really do the job of being that kind of balanced a practitioner is able to sort of take root and so that we can see the, the, the fruit of that. So that would be my comment. Thank you very much. So not just the front door, but also the back door. Very interesting perspective and provocation for us. Thank you. And now I'd like to introduce Henrietta Royal, who is CEO of Fanshawe Holden, but you might have heard of her as one of the founders of the 30% Club. So really one of the movers trying to shift the needle uh, on the topic of women in the boardroom, for which we're all very grateful. And she not only is a background, has a background as a banker, but herself has a perspective which is quite broad because she sits on boards that range from corporates to also the Career Academy, which is a charity that uh, deals with the development of 16 to 19-year-olds. So it'll be interesting to see what you're seeing also at the sort of very young end of the spectrum uh, and I'm sure you have many other perspectives to share. Henrietta. Thank you. Um, I thought what I'd do is just um, talk about two broad things, and I can also talk about the, the young as well. Firstly, a little bit about the 30% Club. I, I don't know how much you know about the 30% Club, but uh, this is something that I helped Hannah LaMorrissey set up last year. And really it came out because over the last five or six, well, actually more years, there have been a number of initiatives on what you might call the supply side, in terms of improving the visibility and the availability of really able, talented women who are absolutely qualified to be on boards. Um, there's the FTSE 100 Women's Mentoring Scheme, uh, there's the boards, um, boards Forum, to name just two, and, and, and I know a lot of the headhunters have been doing work in this area. There are a lot of women around. But as has been said, the dial had not shifted. They weren't getting hard onto boards. And so, Really, what we're about is about attacking not the supply side, which lots of people are doing stuff on, but the demand side. But it was quite clear that the demand wasn't changing. And so the 30% Club is designed for chairmen. So the idea is the actual members are the chairman of companies, and they sign up with an aspiration to have at least 30% of their board being female by 2015. 
Now, relative to where we are, that's a huge jump. Um, we've currently got 30 chairmen signed up so far, mostly FTSE 100, uh, most of the big accountancy firms, some of the big lawyers, sadly not McKinsey, which I feel they should be. <laughs> Let's have a drink. <laughs> um, and there's a female, senior female steering group who are supporting the chairman's efforts. We're also obviously working very closely with the Davis group. Um, I think, you know, the timing, as it turned out, was very good. Um, we've had, there's been an awful lot of coverage and publicity, both about what Davis is doing, but also about the efforts that we've got. And I think it's quite clear that suddenly things are moving. The FTSE 100 is moving fastest. Mervyn Davis told me on Tuesday that uh, appointments are running at about 38% female. Now, in order to really make traction, that obviously needs to be over 50%, because otherwise you've still got the vast majority of appointments being male. But that's a huge transformation compared with what it was. And so let's at least be happy that that is, that is happening. Unfortunately, the FTSE 250 remains recalcitrant, resistant, and fairly bloody-minded. So I think that that's... I think the headhunters here would probably agree with me that that's where you've got a lot of chairmen who, part of it, just don't see why they should be pushed and aren't prepared to be bossed around in their own boardroom and say, well, you know, actually I'm going to be, you know, I don't care and I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it because that's my right. And they don't really want to listen, which is frustrating to the arguments. If they'd listened and had a, had a, a rational argument, that would be better, but of course the time they don't want to listen. As one director of a FTSE board said to me once, why do we need to get, a, get women to be more diverse? Why can't we just get a different sort of man? <laughs> Can you imagine? That cheered me. Um, anyway, we're pushing hard not only to recruit new chairmen, um, and the idea is that the chairman we've got recruit other chairmen, because that's the most powerful thing. Otherwise, it looks like women, you know, self-serving going after it but if a, if a male chairman says I've got more women on my board and this is why I've got them and this is why really really good for me and for my company uh, you should do this because actually you'll have a better board and therefore a better governance of your company that's the most powerful thing the thing that we're trying to do to as it were get some of behind them is of course the investor community if the investors get out and say guys uh, we don't like the fact that you have poor, what we would regard as poor governance. We don't like the fact that you have groupthink, identikit boards, you're all coming from the same place thinking the same thing, and look what you're all doing on the money side because you're all on each other's boards, mutually backscratching. Um, that is what is going to concentrate chairman's minds. And so um, we've got some key people from the investment community on our steering group working very hard with us. We've got a number of uh, big investors. We've um, got the, probably the largest five already very supportive and signed up and working on a number of others, talking to a number of others to get those coming through. That is what's going to make the chairman sit up and take notice. So how will boards change by having a decent number of women on them? All the evidence shows that it does really make a difference to the board how many there are of you on that. And there's quite a lot of research on this. Uh, one, the view is pretty much if you're the only woman, you pretty much go native because the pressure is so big and, and 
you know, it's very, very difficult. You've got to be a very strong person, I think, not to do that. Two, less pressure to conform, but do you automatically like each other um, and have a lined view? There's no particular reason why you should. And will you be seen by the men as the women and therefore still an outlying minority? Three, all research shows that's when the critical mass you get critical mass, particularly with what you might call an average board of around 12, suddenly you're not extraordinary. You're not pushed into a, an automatic duo with the only other woman on the board. You're able to build constructive alliances where you need to. And suddenly you're seen by the men as normal. And this is why we went for 30% in, in, as a 30% club, because that's when you get the breakthrough. That's the tipping point. Group thinking conventions are very difficult to challenge. I have a friend who's an NED in a big company where it was assumed by all the men that when the CEO was due to step down, in the fullness of time, having done a great job and everybody loved him, um, that the fact that he was what was called a good lever meant that he deserved an exit bonus for a job well done. My friend queried this on the grounds that he'd already received lots of generous bonuses over the years for the success he generated. So he'd already been paid for this, and, and did they not agree? And the response was, well, yes, but now he was leaving, and this was normal, and the sort of equivalent of a gold watch, a multi-million pound gold watch. <laughs> she was made to feel that she was being very difficult and unreasonable. Why was she bucking the system? Is there a reason why historically 70% of NEDs, NED ships tend to go to former, CEO, former or current CEOs and CFOs? then, you know, we're all on each other's boards and we're all doing... We, we've got a mode of this is the way we do things. In order to get at a critical mass of women on boards, most of the female NEDs will not be ex or current CFOs or CEOs simply because they aren't at the moment. There aren't enough women out there who are CEOs and CFOs. And that's been part of the problem about getting on in the first place. Because they say, oh, well, you know, you really need to have done that to to really be qualified. But if we are, are going to see the push, and I think we are seeing many more people being appointed who don't have that background, but have incredibly strong credentials nonetheless, they won't be part of that club. Now, that's going to make quite a big difference to the dynamics of the board, one would have thought. So the interesting question is, as you get a critical mass of these people, how are they going to react to business as usual? Whether it's on pay corporate culture, other board appointments, or board agendas, board agenda priorities, particularly in the current context when we know the, the sensitivity around a range of issues, pay being a very important one, but not, not the only one. Because that's what diversity means. It means challenge to the current assumptions. That's going to be very uncomfortable, and it's probably why a lot of men don't want us but it's also why they desperately need us. Thank you. Thank you, Henrietta. So plenty of progress, but also a good bit of bloody-mindedness to, uh, to overcome. Thank you. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Sherry Kutu, who is, has, I think, the best possible job title that I've ever seen, apart from being a serial entrepreneur and a non-executive director. You're an angel investor. <laughs> so, again, in one person encapsulating a huge range of experience, 
uh, not only as a, a chair and non-exec in the public and social sector, but also an entrepreneurial powerhouse, really making a difference in seeding new entrepreneurs coming through. She was voted by TechCrunch as the best CEO mentor stroke advisor in Europe in 2010. That's really something. Mm. It would be great to hear your thoughts. Okay. Right. Now, I'm thinking I've been the only girl on a board for such a long time, but I've never thought that I suffered from groupthink. Um, <laughs> long may that continue. Um, so I've, I've got some thoughts as opposed to sort of a proper, a proper talk. Um, and I might have some provocations. I'm not, I'm not sure. So I've, the first, um, so I, I was a CEO of, uh, of, of my company, which floated. I believe I was the youngest female chairman ever on the FTSE. Uh, and I know I was the youngest female Ned ever uh, on the FTSE. Subsequently, um, when I took up my, my first um, you know, for a company that I didn't that I didn't start up, um, have always been on public business-minded boards the only female, and usually the usually the youngest by some considerable degree as well. Um, on the on the charitable boards, the university boards, definitely not the lone voice, and certainly probably more than thirty percent. And um, it'd be interesting to have a conversation about um, the one, two, three, um, a little bit, a little bit later. I, I certainly disagree with the if you're alone that you'll that you'll go native. I think that um, the other independent non-execs are very important, and I think that often you you know we form relationships with one another, and then it doesn't really come down to, to gender. I think often I found that we were thinking similarly, but maybe I've gone native. Don't know. I hope I haven't gone there. Um, one of the things that I'm sort of thinking about, I was thinking about well, how could I add value that was different from others, and I suspect that some of you may be thinking about going on boards. Um, so I was going to talk about some of the thoughts that, um, that I go through when I thought about um, and maybe share some of the bad things, bad, some of the mistakes that I've made and, um, and some of the things that I think that, um, that work. Um, a mistake that I have made in the past um, was not looking enough at the company. So I think it's really, really important to do your due diligence on the company. And instead of just being flattered that they've asked you, make sure that you really want to be there and that you believe and understand the company and your ability to add value. And I think a mistake that I made that I managed to get out of, but it was unpleasant, um, was joining a board and not asking some really tr tricky questions, not meeting the senior, uh, the senior execs below the chairman and the CEO. And had I met them, I wouldn't have joined. Um, but I didn't, and I um, faced, the, faced the consequences, which were, un which were unpleasant. Um, so I think if, if I have advice, it's to think really hard about if, if you, you know, if you, I mean, I think maybe a number are maybe expiring. Um, if you, you know, if you find yourself pursued, you think hard about it, just as hard as, as they should think about whether or not you're the right um, mix for them. Uh, because you can find yourself in a, in a rat's nest and it's hard, very, very hard to get off, particularly if it's a public board and you're, you know, a, new, a newly, appointed, uh, newly appointed individual. Um, I think relationships are really, really important, not, uh, I think, between the other non-exec directors and I think also between you uh, as a non-exec director and the senior management team and the chairman. Um, and I think understanding and taking time to form proper relationships with that is important. And I probably underestimated that. Certainly when I was a CEO and had non-execs on my team, I underestimated the amount of time that would be required to make them understand the business properly. And... Um, and I can see that in some of the boards that I, that I sit on now. When they work well, 
um, there is time taken outside of the board meeting to make uh, to make things work, um, and so the uh, the mysterious it'll take three you know three days a three days a month. I think um, I think if you're going to make it work well, often takes a bit more a bit more than that. Um, but the, on the other hand, it's not in meetings, so you can schedule it around other busy crazy busy schedules. Um, I look at being a non-exec as being a, a problem solver. I like, um, I love solving problems. That's what I think being an you know being a non-exec and having the outside perspective allows you to do. Sometimes you find that they're in the forest and can't see their way out. And certainly that's how I was when I was running my own company. And I loved having, you know, the independence there because suddenly they'd raise your head above the trees and you'd see, oh, oh, I can see actually how I can see a way out of this problem because I hadn't thought about it that way. So having the, you know, having independence there and remembering that if you are an independent, you're there to be independent. And that if you go native, you'll lose all your value, all of your value. Um, so, you know, I think part of that is aided and abetted by being plural. So I know that I sit, I sit on a bunch of different boards and that really does, that really does help. Um, it helps because I can A, gain some perspective between what's normal and what's right, um, but also, um, you know, you can clearly see when, the, when a management team is dysfunctional or, or, or whatever, uh, and you, you can help, you know, help them solve the problem more easily than you could if, if it were your only one um, or, or if you didn't have that perspective. So I encourage all of you to go plural, very plural, because um, it certainly it's worked for me. I think also intellectually it's, it's like being in a candy store. You're so, it's probably, I don't know if it's, I think it's probably better than being a consultant, but I chose not to be a consultant. But... Um, and the reason I say that is um, you're responsible for solving the problems. And uh, I think when I was a consultant, so I can say this because I used to be a consultant, um, you had to spot the problems, but you didn't necessarily have to sort them out. When you're a director, you're absolutely on the line, and you really do have to sol sort them out. You can't, um, you know, it's not up to anybody else. It's up to you to help the problems get solved out. So it's, um, um, it's, different. it's different there. Um, I think mentoring and coaching, I was really, really lucky. The first, um, I was quite young when I went onto my first board, and I don't think they wanted me um, because I was a woman. I think they wanted me because they were an incumbent, and I was an entrepreneurial person who understood IT, mm -hmm. and their sector was about to get attacked, and they wanted somebody who thought like an entrepreneur. And I definitely think like an entrepreneur, and I think I was able to help them open, open their eyes. Um, but on the other hand, it was a very experienced chairman who took quite a lot of time to mentor me and take me up a learning curve uh, and help me understand the difference between what happens when you're responsible for the P&L and when you, you know, cross, you know, cross the chasm over to trying to be an influencer and a, and a board member. And um, that was brilliant of, of him to do that. And I've actually had a number of um, chairs, some men, some women, reach out and... Uh, and help me understand how to be more effective. And I think that you know, part of the key is we all have a responsibility um, to, to do that. And I now feel a responsibility as a female entrepreneur to try to help get a lot of um, you know, women to think about and to consider business as, as, a, as a proper career. And I'm not sure if they're being counseled along those lines as, as, uh, as effectively as I would want them to be by the careers counselors. So last week I had, um, we had a, a, there was a philanthropic thing that I run called Silicon Valley Comes to the UK, but we, we got a bunch of iconic women and men um, entrepreneurs out from uh, Silicon Valley. And we made a point of visiting the girl 
all-female high schools with all-female CEOs who were running billion-pound companies and tried to highlight to them why it was really important to study the STEM subjects and why the highest calling, as we were saying, we were trying to do a bit of brainwashing, but why we thought that <laughs> the highest calling for solving the biggest problems that we currently had um, could be solved by combining science, technology, engineering, and mathematics with entrepreneurialism and thinking about business. Um, and we, you know, the, the girls, they went, it was incredible to see. They literally, they never heard anything like that. Um, they, you know, wouldn't stop asking questions. They were literally following us, you know, out of the, out of the building. Um, and it was, it, I mean, it was tremendous. But I think that, you know, changing people's minds and planting the seeds early is an important thing for, for all of us, um, all of us to do. Um, and then being there to catch, capture them. And as people, as you know, chairman have caught me as I floundered a bit or wasn't really sure about how, what role, uh, you know, I should be help, you know, holding, um, taking the time and sitting down and saying, well, I'm not sure if, you know, those comments were, you know, quite, you know, quite the way, you know, maybe this is a different way of doing it. But having the coaching and the mentoring built in to chairing and thinking about if you are a chairman, you should take that time to bring up others around you. Yeah. certainly been helpful for me. Um, any other thing I wanted to talk about? Um, not really. I think we're going to have some interesting, interesting questions. Um, but I think being plural has been really interesting for me. The other thing that I think it's wonderful for, I have three kids, three youngish kids, and being plural allows me to be um, deeply self-indulgent in, in terms of spending a, a bit of time with them. Because you can say, well, actually, if it's a Monday or Friday, I'm not going to come into London. So as we plan our board schedules, can we, can we avoid that? Um, and, and you can do that as a, as a plural person. And um, couldn't do that when I was running my own company. Don't think I could do that if I were, was a senior, senior you know, director in a, in, a, in a corporate. But you can do it as a plural, uh, as a plural person. Thank you. So a real deep sense of personal experience that's um, really conveying the fact that there are many, many levers that you mentioned in all of that that really conspire to to make uh, women's place on boards a successful one. So thank you for that. And um, I should disclose that I am, in fact, going plural next year. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you reached me somehow. <laughs> um, and I, I'd love to introduce to you Emma Gilpin-Jacobs, who is not only partly responsible for this wonderful conference here today, thank you very much for the FT sponsorship, but she's also that very rare beast. She's an, uh, at board level, but she's an exec on boards and we know we know from the stats just how rare and special that is so looking forward to, to hearing your your perspectives on that she's um, she's the global communications director for the financial times and that's what puts her in that place she's also got a background working for for time and also for Freud communication so a different voice to everything that we've heard so far emma i'm going to stand up actually just for change um i'm a former journalist so i'm afraid i've written something um unlike my uh, wonderful, distinguished panel here who um, have done so well. And I hope I'm not going to repeat too many of their points. Um, but thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Julia, for inviting me. When she asked me to come and speak here today, I was delighted, but also I was a bit surprised. I asked her, what do you think qualifies me, a comms director, to speak on this subject? And she said immediately, without batting an eyelid, well, there's three things. First... You're on the management board of the FT. Second, you're a woman. And third, I'm running out of other options. <laughs> so here I am. 
So over the next few minutes, I just wanted to talk about three things, really. Um, a bit about what I think Boardroom 2.0 should look like. A bit about why we're not there yet. And also just to share with you some sort of practical points about how I think we might be able to get there. So today we've heard a lot about where we as women in business want to be and about what some groups have recommended and are doing to create a more level playing field. A boardroom 2.0 where male-female ratios are more equal, where women and men with the same abilities are paid fairly for the same work, and from where a culture of equality can permeate throughout the organisation. As we've heard today, women make up only 14% or so of the FTSE 100 corporate boards, and that's rocketed up from 9.4% in 2004. That stat and many others that we've heard today all point to the same thing, really, and that's that women's representation at senior levels is moving upwards, but it's very, very slow. And in fact, one study in 2008 by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which I think somebody else may have quoted earlier, suggests that it's going to take 70 years at the current rate for gender-balanced boardrooms to be achieved, if then. So the question is, why aren't we there yet? And it's not an easy question to answer. There are many reasons, and of course, every woman faces individual challenges. But there are some key factors that I think are worth noting. First, and this will come as no surprise to anybody here today, a lack of networking. To put it bluntly, men are good at helping each other through informal networks, while women, even successful women, often lack such support. It's great to have access to events like this, but there still aren't enough networking opportunities out there, particularly for women earlier in their careers when they really need it. Second, women often hang back from pushing themselves forward. In her book, The Female Leadership Paradox, Mirella Visser analyzes how the quiet competencies, as she calls them, that propel women to a certain level in organizations often backfire when it comes to making headway into upper management. Unlike most men, women tend to underestimate their ability and to attribute their success to external factors. You ask a woman why she's done a good job, and she says, I had great help, I was lucky. I worked hard. Ask a man, and he'll say it's because he's good. And I'm not being anti-men there. I just think it's something that we have to learn to embrace ourselves. Third, third reason um, is part of the, um, the challenge of the supply. Somebody else alluded to it on, on the panel. I think it was Henrietta. The corporate pipeline. And that's the case globally, as well as in the UK. Across Europe, there's an average of only 11% of board members um, who are women. And companies in half of those European countries have less than 10%, as we saw on one of the graphs that Deborah showed earlier. In the US, among Fortune 100 companies, about 18% of seats on the board are held by women. And one of the reasons that's often quoted for this lack of women is that women drop out to have children. But current statistics indicate that almost half of university-educated women aged 33 to 46 are actually choosing not to have children, yet they're still falling behind when it comes to pay and they're vanishing from middle and senior management positions. So what can be done about this? Well, let's deal with the issue of quotas, which I think everybody's brought up today. 
And it's clearly one option. As you may know, in July, the European Parliament called for EU-wide legislation to ensure that supervisory boards consist of at least 40% of female directors by 2020. In Norway, which already has a 40% female boardroom quota for listed companies, all company boards have at least 30% female representation, albeit made up of non-execs as well. I think the non-execs make up the majority of the positions, actually. There are other countries, notably Sweden, which don't have legislated quotas and equally healthy female representation on boards. But they have a very different attitude to and state provision of childcare. So perhaps quotas are a way to make things work if we can't tackle the underlying social issues. But they are unpopular with many, women as well as men, as we've heard today who think they promote unfairly and not on merit. I'll leave that to you to decide what you think. My colleague Andrew Hill earlier um, recently wrote an article about an initiative that I think may prove useful, the Gender Equality Project. This was launched at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January and is developing what co-founder Nicole Schwab called a standardised tool for closing the gender gap. It aims to put in place a global gender equality certification system that marks companies across five key areas of policy and practice. They are equal pay for equivalent work, recruitment and promotion, training and mentoring, work-life balance and company culture. And it provides a means for companies to demonstrate to current and potential staff that they have an edge over their peers. The GEP hallmark, a stamp that a company is able to reward leadership of more than one decision-making style, could help companies to recruit and retain talented staff of both genders. More details are being made public at this year's, next year's Davos. Um, and I think it's something worth watching. There are other initiatives that may help. This year, the FT launched a non-executive director's certificate a formally accredited seven, level seven postgraduate qualification for new and existing non-exec directors to equip them for the requirements of the role. The first course was incredibly oversubscribed with applications from both men and women, and the first cohort was made up of 25% um, of women, which I think is good news. But whatever solutions are found at the regulatory level, be they self-appointed or imposed, and whatever opportunities are available through professional education, there are things that we women must do to move things along. And I call them th the three M's, meeting, mentoring, and motivation. Women need to learn that they can't do it alone and that they shouldn't have to. Reaching out to others, meeting contacts, creating support networks is crucial to building confidence and a framework for success. Those of us who can should actively mentor younger women on the way up. I've been fortunate enough, like other women here today, I'm sure, to have many wonderful female and male mentors in my life, starting with my mum and dad, probably. We all need to give back what we take out, and we need to share our experiences. I now manage a team of 14, 12 of, whom, 12 of whom happen to be wonderful, talented women, and two are wonderful, talented men. I asked them what they feel about Boardroom 2.0, and the one thing they all cited independently 
was the importance of having female role models and mentors who can inspire them. So finally, motivation. Whether we like it or not, the figures do speak for themselves. Business, sorry, women are not fairly represented in business and certainly not at senior levels. And we need to recognise that we need to work collectively through events such as this to level the playing field for the future. And maybe this does mean lobbying for quotas to speed things up. I'm lucky. I work for a company that does promote women. The male-female ratio at the FT is around 60-40, and the management ratios are broadly the same. I sit on the management board, which numbers 10, and I'm one of three women. Sure, I'd like to see it double that, but the board has never been stronger in terms of its women representation, and it's moving in the right direction. So I'm optimistic about this issue. When I was doing this research, I watched an interview with former US Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, in which she told an anecdote that I thought was worth sharing with you. She shared a story about her granddaughter, age seven, who said to her mother one day, out of the blue, so what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Only girls are Secretary of State. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Quite a lot of resonance there between the three ends and what Sherry was talking about in terms of her personal experience, the importance of relationships uh, and so on. So interesting to, to pick up the threads between you. Now, um, I'm sure that you have questions. Uh, my name is Claire Enders and I am the founder and chief executive of Enders Analysis, the leading TMT research company whose work is supported by McKinsey. Um, thank you very much, McKinsey. Um, anyway, I was actually going to ask the panel whether um, there is any alternative to the plea that I heard from at least one speaker and also this morning, which was that somehow uh, women have to get in the habit of bullshitting in order to get ahead. You know, that it, if guys do it and it's successful for them, that that's a good strategy. I, I for one, who have worked for over 30 years um, and full-time uh, and have two, two children, have, have often been struck by the sincerity and intelligence of women who, have, who don't do any bullshit. And I think it is very much part of the woman brand. <coughs> and I found in my work that people expect a standard of integrity and non-bullshit from me, which is stratospherically higher than men because... And, th and that has actually helped. And I'm, I'm terribly anxious about feeling that women will lose the integrity and sincerity, which, which I prize so much in them. Um, in order to make the grade and, and play the game the way that the men have designed it. And I hope there's an alternative. Okay, that's an exciting, edgy question to kick us off. Thank you for that. So do we have to lose our sincerity and our integrity? Um, Sherry, would you like to start? <laughs> jumping, out, jumping out of my seat. I can see you moving. Um, <laughs> um, well, I certainly... I, I, well, I'm not sure if all men that I know bullshit, but... Um, I don't think that to be successful, you women need to do that. I think one of the things that has been um, something that I take pride in is always having evidence to base my views on. I'm a highly rational, logical individual, and I think I only feel confident speaking when I've got data 
to back me up. It's probably why I've invested in more than 40 data businesses. Mm. Um, but I think having the trends and the data to back you up means that you can be confident and you can therefore have the influence. Because if, you, if I were challenged and I didn't have the data, you know, I don't know what I would, I just wouldn't feel at all comfortable. Maybe a man would, but um, I think particularly if you're a woman, you should have evidence to back up your views and be prepared to communicate that. Because the other thing I think that differentiates women is we are more able to clearly communicate perhaps than our, our male colleagues, and that that is, that is a very good thing. And sometimes you know, our ability to articulate something that may be niggling in the back of other people's minds can sort out some really gnarly issues that other people may not be able to articulate, and that, that's one of the values and one of the benefits that we bring. But I would violently argue that there's no way that women should have to turn to, uh, to BS. Um, and Henrietta, you coach men as well as women? I, I coach both um, and have had direct reports of both men and women. And I would absolutely agree with Sherry. Never, ever, or almost never bullshit, because you will get caught out if you don't have the evidence to back it up. What I think women do need to do more of, and I have this personal experience of this myself, is that men are very good when they do do something good, of telling everybody about it. And they send the e emails around, every single person in the entire universe that they can possibly imagine might vaguely be interested, and often who aren't, and it doesn't matter. And women will wait to be noticed. And um, in one of my roles, I had, I, had a, I had colleagues say, well, you know, I, we want to be more complimented. And I said, well, I'm not psychic. Tell me what the great thing is you've done, and then I'll tell you how great you are. But I need you to tell me, <laughs> because I just don't automatically know. Um, you know, I may see it, in which case I'll tell you, but, but it may be something that I don't directly see, and therefore I don't know. And I've got a colleague smiling at me because she knows this is exactly what we had a situation with some of my... Had a, had a big female team, and a number of them were not very good historically at doing that. They rapidly got better when they realised that actually it did pay off. And there is quite a lot of research that does show that women are not as good at putting their hands up and saying, have you noticed? Because that is important, because people are busy. And you don't necessarily always have the time to notice something great that somebody's done. You want to, but you don't necessarily have the time. So I think it is important that women are better at just highlighting and articulating when they genuinely have something great to show off, but not absolutely, as Claire says, bullshitting and saying, aren't I wonderful? Um, because you, because and, and, and actually women can benefit because... Quite a lot of men do have a tendency to do that. I, I got, once got complimented by, uh, by, by one of my bosses because he said, my goodness, when you say you know somebody, you actually do know them. <laughs> Whereas I'm used to men saying they know somebody and they don't really know them. <laughs> so you back it up, but put your hand up. Hi, I'm Ann Beidel. I'm Managing Director of Executives Online and Executive Resourcing Business and also an Executive Committee member of the Interim Management Association. Um, this morning's sessions drew some comparisons and contrasts between um, independent entrepreneurial career paths and corporate career paths. And if the, the talent pool of people to sit on boards in the future, women to sit on boards in the future, um, isn't filled by former CEOs and former CFOs, as was asserted a couple minutes ago, um, can you comment on some alternative career paths 
that you expect to see women taking um, to assume board roles in the future that would both be relevant for the companies that they serve and provide a different perspective? I, mean, I think um, one of the exciting things about the 21 new women that, that are appointed this year was actually um, they've got a much broader background. I don't know if you've looked at any of that detail. Um, but but they, have, they haven't come from that very traditional, I was the, the finance director or whatever. So that, that's good because that would at least indicate that chairmen are looking wider. And, and that's, that's what it's all about. Um, having canvassed this idea with a couple of thought leaders out there, I'll, I'll take some of the views that I was told. You know, phenomenal talent base in professional services so far untapped. Um, great talent base in the public sector in terms of that's where, you know, if you want to see where, where women running huge sort of P&L businesses are, um, actually the public sector way outshines the private sector in that responsibility. So, you know, there, there's a wealth of talent there. Um, the kind of not listed hedge funds, that kind of thing, again, a, a real wealth of female talent there. So I think that's what, in the beginning when I said, I think we've done so little for so long that there is a wealth of talent sitting on the bench that's ready now, and I think we need to, need to widen our focus. So in that respect, it's all to play for. But we need the search consultants and the appointment committees to be harvesting that community. And I think the other little aspect, little nuance that I've picked up, which I think is important maybe to talk about, is there seems to be a divide in the egos of the of, of sort of maybe this is a bit journalistic, but I think traditionally, you know, male NED appointments are very sort of, you know, just so delighted to be asked and saw that absolutely as part of their next step, maybe as they sort of head off into early retirement. Whereas I think women are less bought into the whole deal, that that's the pinnacle of my career is to be on a board at the end of it. Um, so I think there possibly is more relationship building that needs to be done with women, more helping them understand this is what the possibility could be like, this is what it really means, giving them time to really explore, to your point, really understand the company, meet the team. Um, I think there is a more considered approach maybe that some women potentials need to look at. I, I would simply say that what also I think I'm seeing Chairman uh, start to look at and, and some of the headhunters is particularly if you're going for a slightly smaller company, there are women and people who are running big businesses but are divisional, are, are divisions mm. of very, very large mm. companies and are divisional heads. They haven't been the chief executive of the whole group, but they've nevertheless run, in anybody's standards, very, very large businesses. And the, people are starting to look at those sorts, of, uh, those sorts of people as well. And to some extent, functional heads. I mean... We have a functional head here who sits on the management board. And historically, I think quite a lot of people have gone up through the HR and the marketing side, um, and that hasn't been an area that people have looked at. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, as I think people understand, that the, the, genuinely the people side of things is what actually makes the, government, the company harm, whether there's going to be more interest in functional heads who actually understand that side of things, people who actually understand brand mm. and how your brand can disappear overnight if you do the wrong thing mm. and actually have somebody on the board who really understands that. We've seen a lot of companies the last two years who've got themselves in a little bit of difficulty over that sort of thing. Uh, the only thing I would add on, on the routes that you take up is um, I'm also on the advisory board of LinkedIn um, and we've got 
data on CVs and career paths of 120 million people. And we've run some analyses. So this goes back to liking to back up what you have to say with data. <laughs> um, but we've done research on showing how fast people progress through, you know, up, you know, through promotions. And it's absolutely 100% clear cut that the more you know, the more people you know, mm. and the more relationships mm. that you have, the faster, the faster, higher, and the higher up you you get. Um, so I do think that the point that was made earlier, did you make the networking point? Mm. Yes. Mm. Um, it's it's absolutely critical. The other thing that you can do on LinkedIn is you can pick someone that ha that is where you want to be, mm -hmm. and you can see what route they took to being there. So there's a lot of data that can help you help you see that. So, you know, in answering that question, it might be interesting to take a, an analysis of now, an analysis five years ago of what the roots were, and to see how much that had changed. And I know that we've got the data. I don't know if we've run that analysis, but um, I think it could be it could be done. Yeah. And given the new corporate code mm. uh, on diversity for headhunters, I suspect that this will these sorts of diverse career paths will be more and more common. I'm Ros Davis from uh, Women and Children First. I'm CEO there. Um, I'm going to go completely sideways and do some lateral thinking uh, here, so please bear with me. Um, but listening to um, Deborah's presentation a little earlier, when she noted that I think it was Bulgaria and Latvia um, had surprisingly high numbers, and a question was thrown out, well, why might that be? Um, at the time, I thought, well, perhaps... Um, there's something about a communist background in education where women would have been more equal through education and in the workplace. And then, as I've been listening to discussions during the day, I realised I'd actually heard a lot of American accents. So I'm wondering, is it something... Or Canadian. Um, <laughs> is there something... I, I'm a sociologist originally, by training. So I'm wondering, kind of getting away from this, oh, you know, do women want to work? Is it an individual? What do men think? What do the companies think? I'm actually looking at the wider kind of cultural context and the overall... Um, socialization process and the culture we grow up in. Is there something different about communist or former communist countries and something where a very strong um, entrepreneurial spirit, the U.S., as we know, you know, a country of opportunity, if you want to make something, if you want to work hard, the opportunity is supposed to be there. I'm not saying that's the reality. But I'm wondering whether some of these factors um, should be looked at as well as the individual companies and individuals in the workplace. So how much internationalism can we muster? Caroline, you, you well, were whispering in my ear. I was going to, to, say to something. that, and then I'll come um, to Emma. One of the great things about my job, I've got a regional role. So I am responsible for 53 countries in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, and what I love about that is the diversity, the cultural, social, political, historical diversity, right? And um, we have a, a huge employee base in Poland. And I can tell you, gender diversity in Poland doesn't seem to be an issue. In fact, by far the overwhelming majority, you know, I talked about women in seats of leadership power. Um, that would be true for my colleagues in Poland. They've got different issues around diversity and inclusion, um, but they don't seem to be as hotly centred around gender as they are in, in other parts of sort of more Western Europe. Um, if I go north of that, and if I go to my colleagues in Russia, right, similar sort of background post-communist, um, 
the nuance there is incredibly talented, incredibly well-educated women, absolutely rising to, to the top. But you know what? They come home and they have to cook the dinner and it has to be on the table at 7 o'clock and they have to look after the kids. And there is a real um, sense of, yes, you can have that executive job, but not at the expense of the family. And, and I just, what I love about this is looking at how that thread varies as you go um, east, west, north, south, um, and I think it absolutely makes a difference. Thank you. And Emma, you're responsible for internal and external communications globally for the FT, so you must see some differences or com commonalities too. Yeah, I mean, obviously there, there are differences, but for me the thing that was really striking when I was doing some research for today was actually how the themes are really broadly the same in most developed countries anyway. Mm. You look at the statistics for women on boards in the US, what was it, 18% of Fortune 100 companies, and here it's 14. You know, there really isn't that much difference. Mm. Um, what I find more interesting is the um, looking to see what age, um, differences in attitudes of different people of different ages. When you look at um, people who are under 25 and you ask them about gender differences, they really don't see the same issues that certainly women over 40 do, for example. That's something that Deborah talked about earlier on, and um, for me, that's where the real kind of difference is and where the, hopefully things might change in the future. So there are real differences, but not always as predictable as you might think. Um, certainly last night, a few of us were at an event where we heard a lot about Germany and how mm. tough it is in Germany, given the lack of, um, of habits around childcare provision and so on. Um, so very different, even just crossing the border between France and Germany. Thank you very much for your question. And I just wanted to ask the panel and perhaps the audience, what are the elephants in the room? You know, what about women who don't support other women, who compete with other women? Uh, what about the fact that you're not necessarily going to have some fantastic utopian uh, boardroom culture just by having more women on mm. the boards. Um, uh, you know, what, what, what context should we in fact be looking at the whole question of women in? Is it all about women and other women and promotion of women, or is it in fact that we, we envisage a different culture that is still slightly out of our reach? So is it about culture more broadly, or is it really just about women? Laying that gauntlet down, who's going to grab it? Oh. No pressure. Jerry, <laughs> <laughs> you're the one who's already there. <laughs> you pulled a face. Oh, well, I think it's a, it's a difficult question. I, think, um, I don't think it should be just for women. I think that diversity in, a, in all its forms is, is important. And I don't think it's there in all its, in all its forms at, at the board. Um, I think that there's you know, quite a lot being done now. Um, I know that, you know, I think that if, if you are, do find yourself in the position of, of being a, you know, a woman who can you know, influence, um, I mean, one of the reasons to come out and agree to, to talk is because um, although you might want to be doing your day job, it's, it's important to, to try to do these. And, I think going up and speaking to the schools so that the girls, mm. when they come out, absolutely think that there is no is no difference, and also at their you know at their school that there's no, you know, not only gender differences but no other diversity differences. I think that, you know, something that I would aspire to in the future is having you know a microcosm in the board so that you can have you know, so that you can have that diversity and that creativity that was that, that we all speaking about, and that I think is healthy and good. 
um, you know, the, the more different perspectives that you have, the better. I was speaking to somebody just yesterday, and it was, um, and he's, he, he said, he actually was very blatant. He said he was looking for, um, for a, a, a person to go on a board, wanted it to be a wild card, and thought it would be convenient if it were a woman. <laughs> and um, and uh, it's like, so, so you have to have a wild card, and you want it to be a wild card and a woman just because you've got a bunch of stale male gray, or whatever that pale male stale thing is. Um, and um, well, so you can see that, but why can't you have, you know, why, why not just have the, and it was just one, as opposed to three. Um, and that, you know, that, that's not going to be a very healthy, you know, sort of environment probably to, to be in, because you know that you're there supposed to be a wild card, and you know, you might be a token, you know, you, you know, just by the way that's introduced, you might be a token woman. And that I don't think is healthy at all. And that, you know, you've got, there's some definite attitude um, that, that were enunciated in, in, the, in that conversation. And I hope that we don't continue to have those conversations going forward. I know that um, I don't think my daughter will have any doubt about where she should be and what her capabilities, you know, are. And I don't think that she sees it, you know, her, she sees it completely differently. I was lucky I had a, a mother and an aunt who were very, um, you know, who were very, you know, I would say relatively career-minded and worked. And so for me, working and contributing outside of the home was, was very much what, you know, what we should all do. And I think we all have a, you know, and I think we should. Um, I, so had, I had an entrepreneurial role model in my family, and I'm wondering whether that is part of the question here really is that it's not so much about imposing help which immediately results in the thing you've talked about which is you quickly can come up against tokenism Henrietta might disagree but whether you actually have women that are driven enough because they are motivated enough as Emma says but I still would like someone to answer the question about we're doing a very good impression here today of women being marvellously supportive to other women but I don't think that is the whole story well well there are some differing views on that because, um, you know, we talked a little bit about Margaret Thatcher earlier on, didn't we? And, and she famously had this uh, reputation for not supporting women around her. Um, uh, I can't remember the name. Who was the woman who uh, was at the London Business School? Oh, Linda Grattan. Oh, Linda nice. Grattan. Thank oh. you so much. I really love all her research. I've just forgotten the name in the moment. She did some, some interesting research a few years ago where she looked at, um, she looked at executive positions, uh, women and men, and found some very interesting differences. One of the interesting differences was actually the number of children that they had. So you know, female executives tended either to have no children or one older child. Male executives, direct peers, tended to have multiple children and younger. So there's an interesting debate we can have there. But one of the things she also found was that actually when you get women in senior leadership positions, her data said they drew to them and actually appointed into their management hierarchy more women. So uh, for, for me anyway, when I heard her present that, she debunked the myth of the Queen Bee Syndrome and that once you get a senior woman up there, she draws the you know, drawbridge up from behind her. And certainly, so that was a bit of an academic view. Certainly my practitioner experience inside has been actually women are very supportive to wanting to mentor junior talent and bring talent on and spot it. Um, so I actually, I haven't found that to be the case. I would say that the vast majority of women I've ever come across have been overwhelmingly supportive, helpful, and gone out of their way. 
There are queen bees, but what I'm glad to say is they are a tiny minority. I have come across them. Uh, one of them I was told recently, it wasn't that she doesn't want to help women, it she doesn't want to help anybody. <laughs> so she's not discriminating. <laughs> so she's not discriminating. Um, but, you know, there are one or two around, um, but I think that they are... My experience has been that they're a tiny minority. And I think they'll be caught out. I mean, the, yeah. we do yeah. know that it's relationships and how you yeah. contribute to the community that, you know, advances your own success. So I think, mm. I do, I think it's very self, it's destructive behaviour. Mm. And some of the most recent research that Catalyst has done on sponsorship suggests mm. that we do hold women, senior women, to somewhat higher standards than we hold senior men to when we're thinking about mentorship and sponsorship because there is a little bit of an expectation that they will do more. Mm. Um, so take that as it is, but that's the latest research from Catalyst. Can Any I, more elephants in the room? Elephants. And, yes. and, 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 yes. and as an elephant, which is, I think there is enough of, there's endless talk about mentor, mentoring mm. and women get more mentoring. What actually you see with a lot of men and why they, they run very successfully with their careers is they get... They identify and get sponsors of people who push them. And I think women either don't get or are less good at getting and who knows what it actually is and getting that sponsorship. Mm -hmm. um, they also obviously suffer from the problem of you know, older man, younger woman, speculation as to what's going on sort of thing. And I think that if women could get more sponsorship, that that would also help. And there's not enough that goes on in terms of actually getting the sponsorship. Yeah, I think. mentorship is great advice. Sponsorship is actually taking risks for someone. That's well, it, it, rare at pushing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. My name's Lindsay Johnston. I'm a managing director at UBS Investment Bank. And it's, I don't know if it's an elephant, but it's sort of quite a basic question um, at UBS and I think probably other investment banks as well, city generally, um, is how to make diversity, gender diversity, relevant and important to the senior management of the bank. Um, mm -hmm. You know, clearly we're in a very challenging business environment at the moment. And uh, to quote one of my colleagues, we simply don't have time for diversity right now. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a quest for the bottom line and uh, a lot of short-term thinking. So I would just appreciate any advice you have or anyone in the room as to how to sort of up the ante. Okay, how to up the ante, how to get the men on board. Um, Got a bit of banking experience up here. I can answer it Go from for a it. diversity practitioner yes. point of view. I think um, I think that is the next challenge, right? So if I'm really honest, and, and we're all kind of much of a muchness in our sector, I think we have done a lot of very good work, and there's been a lot of work to encourage and enable and develop women. Um, I think the next challenge is, all, is the fixing the system, to stop fixing the women and start fixing the system, really, for me, personally. Um, so some things that I have done and I am doing now, um, it, somebody today said, you know, if you can't track it, it doesn't get managed, right? Um, and one of the difficulties about my work is that it's all a bit of a lagging indicator. It's if we look back, this is how many people we hired or this is how many people we promoted. So I really try to change that, turn that on its head, and start to do projections. And so I've now gone to my management team on the, the, th the three things you can do differently, promote more, lose less, hire more, and said, okay, if, if this is your run rate from 2009. This is your trend. By 2013, if we just continue doing everything exactly the same, so no one cuts my budget, no one expends it, whatever, extends it, 
this is where you're going to get to, and it's that, it's that incremental progress definitely is there. But you know what? If we create 10% more energy around each of these three disciplines, I think I can get your business here. And if we create 20% more energy, which, to be honest, is la-la land, I can get your business here. And um, I had... I, I'm many constructs the same. I'm lucky enough to work with a very senior team who's sort of on my diversity <coughs> steering committee. And one of the seniors said... He said, A, it's great to see HR data that's about projections and forecasts rather than lagging indicators, which I thought was a very interesting point. And then he said, do you know what? We should hold throughout next year each of the business seniors accountable to say, if you haven't actually met even your, your trend line, something's going on. So I, what I'm sensing as a practitioner in the business is an absolute sea change and much more of a, a willingness to we've got to start holding people accountable to the hard numbers rather than making it an opt-in sort of, we're providing all this for you, opt-in if you want to, system. Mm -hmm. don't know if that helps. Interesting. So more of, more of a carrot of the what if, what could this look like versus the yeah, stick. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's one of my responsibilities um, to give them the tools and the techniques to impact that, right? So... I know what my top three things are that will hit retention. And I know my top three things that will hit hiring. And I've just got to get them to sign up for that rather than just keep saying, here's the problem, you haven't got enough women, go and fix it. Okay, so projection, not just lagging, measuring it, really tracking it. Any other experiences on how you make this uh, relevant and important? Well, it's, 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 it's bringing it back to the numbers, isn't it? Because if you just look at it from that perspective, it costs you money, money every time you hire. It costs you money every time you lose somebody. A, you've lost the investment, but B, you're then going to have to spend money to hire them. They're then going to be a lag while they get up to speed. And people understand that in terms of cold, hard cash. But also, if you can accelerate, if people aren't, performing as well as they could, and if you did something to make that happen, then presumably you're going to generate more income. Mm. So I think it's always about making sure they realise this isn't just nice to have because we're nice people. It's about getting the business to perform more effectively, controlling cost and generating more income. Thanks very much. I was going to apologise for being male uh, and then to regret that I don't fulfil... I don't fulfil all these uh, uh, perceptions of uh, what men are like. So my bullshit factor is very low. Um, which, is, which probably hasn't helped me much. Um, my question uh, will follows on from what you were just saying about um, how you make this relevant, um, because obviously people are, uh, as you said, um, very focused on on the bigger picture. Um, and I was and I was thinking about the issue of thought leadership, which is an area I I work in, write in, edit, and so on. Um, and while you've got very good uh, women uh, academics, and you've mentioned some thinkers, writers, um, when you look at Davos coming up, for instance, they're going to be covering a huge uh, issue, which I think is a very relevant issue, of transformational models, as they call it. Um, what kinds of business models do you need going forward? If you think beyond or visualize beyond where we are now, um, what is going to make things more you know, what's going to make growth uh, more sustainable, what's going to encourage green entrepreneurship, etc. What kind of transformational models do you need? Now, that conversation, I think, will be dominated by men. And I'm just wondering why women uh, don't contribute more um, vocally on, on this kind of thing and influence that kind of 
and, and, and show uh, maybe a different vision that will indicate what appreciable difference that might make if women were more influential in the boardroom or running companies. So why aren't women commenting on these major transformational issues which are so dominant and so pressing at the moment given what's going on in the world economy? Well, I guess I would say, coming from the FT perspective, that women are commenting on them. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, the FT has got a huge array, stable of very talented journalists, many of whom are women. Um, and I think that... I don't know exactly who's speaking at Davos, I'm afraid, but I'm sure that when the agenda comes out, that there, you know, there will be women there. I think women are well represented now. Um, but isn't the point that women are offering something different, but the women aren't given the opportunities always to get into the positions that they can actually manifest change? Right. I'm, I'm hearing two different things in what you're saying. One is the question of whether women would run the world differently. And then the question of why aren't there women talking about how they would run the world differently. Yes. Oh, yeah. So would anybody like to attack that? Maybe you, should make, maybe you should make Davos only available for those that are part of the 30% club. Uh, yeah. I, think, uh, I think when you get the women's voices on the boards, you will get the transformational yeah. business models. Um, and I do, um, my experience is, is that, you know, there are women who are making a large difference and who are choosing to, to stand up. So the challenge we're talking about the differences between men and women, I know I'm sure. The challenge in talking about the differences between men and women is that that we're always talking about two overlapping bell curves, in that there are always many, many similarities as well as differences. Mm. There do seem to be some, there does seem to be some evidence that there are some different styles that women bring, which have been referred to throughout the day. The greater tendency towards thinking about networks and collaborations, uh, a greater tendency towards thinking about setting um, an inspirational vision versus uh, more of a sort of a telling model. Most of that evidence um, you would see re reflected in work by people like Alice Eagley, and I'm sure there are other views in the room. Now, I, th I think that the main point here is that if you have a diversity of perspectives and experiences, that brings a better answer to any problem. I don't know that the world run by women would be necessarily a very, very different world than the one run by men, but a world run by men and women, people with diverse perspectives, experience of different sectors, different, uh, different life experiences, there I think that is the point that you get potentially a, a new dialogue about how to run the world. Here, here. Mm. <laughs> and, and there is indeed quite a lot of research that shows that single gender teams of either sex do not do as well in terms of performance or IQ, as it were, as, as, as a mixed team. So I don't think we want to have just go from one extreme to the other. It was just a response to um, the uh, question about utopian women and how we do things differently. And tragically, we can't do controlled experiments to look at the last 2,000 years and see precisely the, the ways in which we do it differently. But I just wanted to quote Christine Lagarde, who talked about the excess of testosterone in the banking crisis. And I think Lynn Featherstone has made similar comments. Now, again, we don't know whether things would have been different if there had been more women involved at the senior levels of Lehman Brothers or whatever. But we do know, unfortunately, that an awful lot of men messed up very, very badly. And there do seem to be quite a lot of studies. I've spoken to um, various psychologists about this to, to indicate that the risk that greater levels of testosterone 
does lead to greater um, propensity to risk. So I think that's one relatively concrete thing that we might identify at board level that might make a difference. Wow, what an exciting point at which to lead the debate and go into a break. We've got lots now to talk to each other about if we didn't already. So thank you. Can you give a round of applause to this wonderful panel? Thank you very much.